Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'll begin reading this morning in verse 19, and I'll read through verse 34. Please give your attention to God's Word. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Every generation of the church from the very beginning has had its celebrity preachers. In the early church, there was John Chrysostom, whose last name means golden voice. The time of the Reformation, later from after the Reformation, during the time of the colonial period, leading up to the Revolution, we had the era of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Late 1800s, we had Charles Spurgeon. And in the 20th century, we had Martin Lloyd-Jones, Billy Graham. When you think of the first century, especially the area of Palestine, there's no doubt who the celebrity preacher of that day was. If you read the morning papers, if you talked about the buzz around town, Everybody knew who the celebrity preacher of the first century was, and it wasn't Jesus Christ. Not in the eyes of the world, anyway. The secular historians who wrote about the first century wrote more about John the Baptist than they did about Jesus Christ. By the superficial standards of the world, John the Baptist was a brighter star among preachers. In Mark chapter 1, the parallel passage in, in Mark's gospel, 
It says this, John, John the Baptist, appeared baptizing in the wilderness, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now that's a remarkable statement, and of course, Mark doesn't mean that the word all in the absolute sense. He doesn't mean that every single person in Judea or every single person in Jerusalem came out to hear John the Baptist preach and to be baptized. But he's saying that a very high percentage of the population were coming out to hear John the Baptist. So imagine the massive crowds that were out there in the wilderness listening to him. And really, the highest tribute to John the Baptist that could ever be given is the one that was given by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. High praise indeed. But I can't imagine John the Baptist living like celebrity preachers do today. can't imagine him driving around in limousines and doing seminars and having book signings and running radio and TV ministries. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things inherently, and not that you can't use those effectively. And maybe John would have used them. Who knows? I can't speak for him. But I just have a hard time imagining John using those kinds of methods to get his message out. Because after all, John was a Nazarite, never had cut his hair, wore a robe made out of camel's hair, lived on locusts and honey, and lived his entire adult life in the wilderness. It's also hard to imagine the sermons of John the Baptist getting much airtime these days. Just to give you one snippet from Luke chapter 3, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist was a prominent figure in first century Palestine. A huge celebrity preacher. He also figures very large here in the beginning of the Gospel of John. We've already run across his name a couple of times in in these early verses of the first chapter. And here, John the Apostle, I'm going to try to keep the two Johns straight as I talk this morning. John the Apostle feels it's important for us to understand who John the Baptist was, but not really. I mean, you think about how controversial and colorful of a figure John the Baptist was, and we really don't learn much about him in any of the Gospels, but even particularly here in the Gospel of John. A guy like that, you want to know more about him, what makes him tick, what what was his lifestyle like? Curious about a lot of details. And John the Apostle tells us almost nothing. Matter of fact, as we're going to see here in this passage, we learn a lot more about who John the Baptist wasn't than who he was in this passage. And we'll be looking at that in a moment. And I think that's really appropriate. Because as we look at what John says about John the Baptist, as we study this account of his ministry, I think we're going to see that John the Baptist is much more like you and me as ordinary disciples of Christ than he is like big-name celebrity preachers. 
Because John the Baptist, one thing that hits you as you read this passage from John 1, the thing that hits you most, most strongly, the characteristic of John the Baptist that you see most clearly is that, and John the Apostle wants us to see this, John the Baptist was a witness. Just as that was so important in his own self-identity, Remember how we talked about how John the Apostle said, I am an eyewitness. That's all you need to know about me. I am an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And really, that's all he wants us to know about John the Baptist as well. He describes him in verse 7. If you go back to verse 7, look at how he describes John the Baptist there. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That's the most important thing to know about John the Baptist. The Greek word that that is used there for witness is the word from which we get our word martyr. It's interesting that that word in English has come to mean someone who dies for their witness or testimony. And that's just, we get that meaning by connotation from experience. Because when you bear witness to the light, when you bear witness to Jesus Christ, be prepared. You're going to face persecution. And you may have to put your life on the line. But that's what John the Apostle wants us to know first and foremost about John the Baptist. He is the witness to the light. And certainly John the Baptist put his head on the line for his testimony. John the Baptist's own words are at the end of the passage we just read a moment ago, verse 34. He says, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Witness is one of John the Apostle, again, trying to keep the two Johns straight. Witness is John the Apostle, one of his favorite words. The word witness, martyr, the word witness appears 37 times in the New Testament. And John, as an author, uses it 30 of those 37 times. He really feels this is important that we understand this is our identity. Matter of fact, it fits his theme, as you remember back in our very first message in this series of sermons in chapter 20, verse 31, we looked at that summary of the entire Gospel of John where it says, John the Apostle said he wrote his eyewitness account so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's really the theme of John the Baptist's life as well. Well, what does John the Baptist's example teach us about the characteristics of a true witness? First of all, John the Baptist shows us that a true witness must be sent by God. He must be an authoritative witness appointed and sent by God. Look at verse 19. It says there that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist some questions. It's a delegation. Matter of fact, in verse 24, interestingly, it notes there, and I think John the Apostle threw this in there, because in his day that was significant. He says in verse 24 that this delegation of priests and Levites was sent by the Pharisees. Now, if you know first century Jewish history, that's interesting because priests and Levites tended to be part of the party of the Sadducees. There were two main parties in the Jewish, among the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were really the, the, the ones in power. They're the ones who dominated the Sanhedrin. And it was largely made up of the priests, the priesthood, and the Levites. But these priests and Levites were sent by the Pharisees. And it makes sense that because the Pharisees were the most theologically conservative of the two parties, 
They're the ones who would be most concerned about keeping the preaching and the rituals of the temple pure. And so they had this great concern. What is John the Baptist doing out there that everybody is so interested in finding out about? When I thought about it, you know, put this into Presbyterian terms, what this delegation is is really a commission or a committee, an investigatory committee. That's what we would do at Presbytery. We have a presbytery that oversees churches in a certain region. And if we hear about something odd going on in one of the churches, something questionable, that's something we might do in our presbytery. We might send out an investigatory committee or commission to investigate, to find out what's going on. And understand that that's not only is that appropriate, it's really necessary in the church, that we protect the church. That's what spiritual leaders have the responsibility to protect the church from false prophets, false teachers, and false teaching. And so, in a sense, there's nothing wrong. There's a good thing that the leadership in Israel is doing. Something weird going on out there in the wilderness with John the Baptist. Let's send a team out there to investigate and find out what's going on. These leaders are the gatekeepers to protect the flock. And so the first question the delegation asks is, who are you? And we know from John's response, John the Baptist's response, that he understood that what they're asking from their official position is, what are your credentials? Who do you claim to be? On what right do you preach these things and call these people to repentance? John the Baptist knew, you can see from his response, that they were suspecting that he was another in a long line of preachers who were claiming to be the Messiah. In that era of Jewish history, expectations about the coming Messiah were high, and there were a lot of false messiahs popping up around, and so that's what they suspected. Matter of fact, that was the buzz among the crowds. It's interesting. If you go over to Luke 3, verse 15, this is what it says about the crowds that were massing around John the Baptist. It said, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So that was the hot question among the crowds. Is he the Messiah? The word Messiah, of course, means anointed one. The deliverer promised Throughout the entire Old Testament, the great coming deliverer and king who would establish the kingdom of God on earth is John the Baptist, the Messiah. And it's interesting, it says, of course, John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. But it's interesting how John the Apostle puts it, just to emphasize how strongly he denied it. The Apostle John writes, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It sounds awkward in English. It's even more awkward, I hear, in, in Greek. The, 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 the structure that John the, the, the Apostle uses say, he denied vigorously, is what he's saying, that he was the Christ, the Messiah. So they ask him a second question. Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not. Now, that might sound like an odd question to ask of John the Baptist, after all, In the first century, the Jewish people didn't believe in reincarnation or anything like that. So why in the world would he ask John the Baptist if he was he was Elijah? But remember that it had been 400 years since there was a prophet in Israel. 
Malachi was the last prophet sent by God. And the very last words of the very last prophet of the Old Testament. You remember what the last words of Malachi were? Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Wow, talk about a cliffhanger at the end of the Old Testament. This had people for 400 years wondering, what does this mean? That Elijah was going to come before the day of the Lord. And of course, day of the Lord if you, it was connected to the coming of the Messiah. So people were looking for some appearance of Elijah. And they were debating about what that meant. What could that look like? Well, and remember, Elijah never died. He's one of two men in the Old Testament who did not die. He went out to the wilderness, interestingly, across the Jordan, which it says here in John chapter 1, that's where John the Baptist was baptizing, was across the Jordan in the wilderness. Elijah went across the Jordan into the wilderness and was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind with the chariots of fire. He never died. So that's that's where the buzz started among people and say, well, maybe since he never died, he can somehow come back physically. I'm not talking about reincarnation here, just somehow he's able to physically come back from the wilderness and announce the, the arrival of the Messiah and the day of the Lord. Well, you can understand the expectation then, but there is another thing that's kind of puzzling about this, is that Jesus later on seems to contradict what John the Baptist said. They said, are you John the Baptist? He said, no, I'm not. Well, how does that fit together with what Jesus would later say? He says, if you're willing to accept it, John is Elijah who was to come. Well, what I believe John the Baptist is saying, when they ask him that question directly, he understands what the expectations were. They were looking for the literal Elijah to come. And he's saying, no, you don't understand. The literal Elijah was never promised to come. I am not the literal Elijah. But what Jesus was referring to is what the promise the angel Gabriel gave to to John the Baptist's father in the temple, to Zechariah. This is what Gabriel said to him about John the Baptist. He said, he will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that's what the prophecy really meant. That John the Baptist would bring the word of God like Elijah did in the same spirit and power of Elijah. Not that he was going to be literally Elijah. So John the Baptist, by denying the question, was really answering what they were asking, not asking, answering what we might ask. He wasn't, and Jesus wasn't contradicting him. The third question is, are you the prophet? Again, not are you a prophet, but are you the prophet? And of course, this was the prophet that Moses had promised. Moses, back in Deuteronomy 18, had promised a unique prophet. He said that one day God is going to raise up a prophet like me. Not a, not just any old prophet, but a prophet like me. Well, what's a prophet like Moses? Well, a prophet like Moses would be a mediator of the covenant. And so there would be a prophet who would come with the final word from God, who would be a mediator of a new covenant. That's really what Moses was saying. And so they said, are you the prophet? Matter of fact, in John the Baptist's day, the Jews were debating Was this prophet that Moses had promised, was this prophet another forerunner like the Elijah to come? Or was this prophet the real Messiah? Well, we know later as we read the Gospels, the prophet that Moses was referring to was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he claimed to be that prophet. 
And so that's why John again says, no, I'm not that prophet. I am a prophet, but I'm not that prophet. And so then John points to who he really is. Who are you then, they basically say. And he points to the word of God for his credentials. Verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's saying, I have credentials given to me by God himself. And yes, he's affirming there. If you go back to Isaiah and you look at that, the context of that passage, he is saying, yes, I am the one who was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. I am that voice in the wilderness that, that Isaiah prophesied. And the imagery, if you go back to that passage in Isaiah, the imagery is of a herald of the king, an officially uh, endorsed herald of the, of the king who would go out to the cities and the countryside to announce that the king was coming. A royal visit was about to happen. And so this herald would ride into town and say, make the road into town ready. Make the town ready. Be prepared because the king is coming soon. It's a very common thing in those days before a royal visit. And so this is what the voice of the wilderness is saying. Make the roads clean. Make them straight. Make them smooth. And that's why John the Baptist came preaching repentance. Prepare your heart. The Messiah is coming. In that quote from Isaiah, it says that this voice belongs to the one who would announce the coming of the Lord. And in the context, it says it would announce the pardoning of sin. And he concludes that passage by saying the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And that's what John the Apostle is saying about John the Baptist. He's the voice who says the glory of the Lord has been revealed. Well, how does that apply to us? John had to have credentials. And we certainly don't have the kind of credentials that John the Baptist had. God has not spoken to us, has not called us, has not given us a direct revelation from him to share with the world. So we're not prophets like John the Baptist was. But we do have credentials. We are sent by the Lord with his authorized word. It's already been revealed. We have it in scripture. It's the word of Christ. And Christ has commissioned us. We talk about the great commission. Well, we are commissioned by Christ to take his word to the nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know, when we have an opportunity to witness in our workplace, in our family, in our neighborhood, at school, when we have the opportunity to bear witness about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do, one question, I don't know about you, but one question always pops up in my head. What right do you have to tell other people what they should believe? My culture, my country, the media, everything has trained me well over the decades of my life to ask that question when I speak about absolute truth. What right do you have to tell other people what they should believe? And the answer to the question is the same answer that John the Baptist had. I have been commissioned by my Lord And I have been given his word 
And that is my right. Those are my credentials. I will tell you what is true. Not based on my authority, but based on his authority. We are sent by the Lord. Second characteristic, a true witness is humble. John is basically saying to these Jewish officials, it doesn't matter who I am. I'm just a voice pointing to the glorious one to come. Don't focus on me. I'm unimportant. I'm just a voice. Reminds me uh, when we had our Sunday school class on worship, I was sharing with you about um, how pastors, preachers of the word start wearing robes, at least in the Protestant church anyway. And they actually wore robes during the time of the Reformation. You tend to think of the time of the Reformation where you get rid of all those ornaments and, and, and uh, you know, ornamentations and, and things that make you look different and special. You know, the, you think of the Reformation worship service as being very plain and simple. But the preachers at the time of the Reformation wore robes for the very purpose of trying to block themselves, to black themselves out, so to speak. They'd wear a black robe so that they would, there would be no distraction to anyone hearing the preaching. That as much as possible, the focus would be on the voice preaching the word of God. To try to, in a sense, hide the preacher and put the focus on the message. That's what the robe was originally, that was the purpose of it in Reformation churches. It's ironic, isn't it? When you go to churches where they wear robes these days, that they look more like peacocks than, you know, like men in black robes. I mean, they they wear robes that are with so much flashy color and ornamentation to draw attention, really. And that's the exact opposite of the purpose of the original robes at the time of the Reformation. John the Baptist says, I'm just a voice. Doesn't matter who I am. Listen to what I'm saying about the one who is to come. He says in verse 27, He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That was the attitude of John the Baptist. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. That's actually an old Jewish expression, an old Jewish saying. And it relates to how rabbis or teachers, you know, in the first century especially, you'd have rabbis, they would collect around them a group of disciples who would, like Jesus and his disciples, these disciples would live with him 24-7. And if you became a disciple of a rabbi in that time period, you were not only expected to come and sit under his teaching and observe his life, but you were also expected to act as his servants. And so you would wait on him hand and foot and, you know, give him, do for him anything he needed except one thing. There was one thing that a disciple was never required to do for his rabbi, and that was to untie his sandals and remove his sandals. Because in that culture, that was the lowest of all low responsibilities of servants and slaves. And it was considered too humiliating for a disciple to do that even for his rabbi. It's just interesting. So that was a phrase that John the Baptist used says, to me, if I were able to untie the the, the sandals on the coming one's feet, the Messiah, the Lord, if I were able to do that, it would be the greatest honor. It is my privilege to serve him, whatever. And you see that attitude of humility that he had. I am just a voice who would consider it an honor to untie my Lord's sandals. We need to be bold and confident in our witness before the world. We are commissioned 
witnesses of Jesus Christ. And we must be bold and confident or the world's not going to listen to us. If we sound timid and apologetic in our witness, nobody's going to listen to us. But where does that boldness and confidence come from? It comes from the word of God, the power and the truth of the message. It does not come from ourselves. Another one of those questions that always pops up in my mind when I have an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Another one of those questions that always pops up in my mind is, what will this person think of me if I tell them these things about Jesus Christ? John the Baptist would say, it doesn't matter. You're just a voice. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about him. You are a commissioned witness to bear witness to him. As John the Baptist would later say in chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease. And that should be the attitude of every witness, every one of us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. If we communicate pride, either in our words, our attitude, our manner, as we bear witness to Christ, then we are denying the gospel. Because the very essence of the gospel is that we are all sinners saved by grace and deserve nothing in the sight of God. And so then that brings me to the third characteristic of a witness. As John the Baptist models it for us, a true witness is Christ-centered. The next day, Jesus walks up to the crowd. This is the moment that John the Baptist has been living for. This is the moment that all the faithful remnant for the last many, many centuries have been waiting for. The Messiah appears on the public scene before the Israelites. He had already been baptized by John. John makes reference to his baptism here, as you notice that at the end of this passage, when the Spirit descended upon Christ like a dove. So Jesus had already been there. He had already been baptized by John. And as we know from the other accounts, the other gospel accounts, he'd already been tempted in the wilderness. And so he's come back now, and he's ready to be declared to the world. This is the big day when the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And so John cries out, and here, in his first words upon the arrival of the Messiah, are really the essence of his entire message, of everybody's, of your message, of my message. This is it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the essence of our witness. This is the core of our message. A faithful Jew in the first century, when we heard John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, would think of three things, possibly. First of all, he might think of the ram that was caught in the thicket when Abraham was at the top of the mountain ready to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. And the Lord said to him, do not do it, but sacrifice the ram instead. Secondly, he no doubt would think of the Passover lamb, where the Israelites in bondage in Israel were to sacrifice a perfect lamb and take the blood of the lamb and and display it on the doorposts on their homes so that when the angel of death went over, he would pass over their homes and death would not visit. Or thirdly, the other passage that a faithful Jew might think of would be Isaiah 53 where it talks about the lamb that was led to slaughter, the lamb who was crushed for our iniquities, the lamb who was pierced for our transgressions. 
You see, this is why John the Baptist's ministry had any meaning whatsoever. John the Baptist came calling people to repentance. But repentance, in and of itself, will not reunite you to your holy God. Repentance will not make you right with God by itself. Blood must be shed. And Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The authorized message, don't miss this, the authorized message that we are, take, we are to take to the world as witnesses is not just that Jesus is the Son of God, although he is, but that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This message is a bloody message. As Paul said, we preach Christ crucified because that is how sinners like you and me are reconciled to a holy God. Jesus Christ paid the penalty on the cross. The Jewish delegation asked John, why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? That's interesting. They were troubled about the fact he was baptizing. Baptism did not arise during the time of the writing of the Old Testament. It actually was started during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it was a ritual that was used for Gentiles, dirty Gentiles, so that they could be accepted into the covenant community of Israel. And so you can see why it was offensive to the Jewish leadership that John the Baptist is out there in the wilderness calling on Jewish people, members in good standing of the church of the day, to repent and be baptized. And then so in verse 43, John the Baptist says, He sent me to baptize with water. This is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, John's baptism was only a symbol of our need for cleansing. But Jesus Christ is the means of our cleansing. John's baptism only pointed like a sign to a much greater eternal spiritual reality, which is life and light for those who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. A true witness, like John the Baptist, is sent by God, he's humble, and he's Christ-centered. And that is our calling. I read Jesus' remarkable tribute to John the Baptist earlier. Jesus said about John the Baptist, Among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But I didn't finish the quote, did I? The next sentence Jesus said was, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's talking about you and me. John the Baptist was the greatest. His voice was the greatest up until his day. But once Christ came, once he died for our sins, once he was raised from the dead and established the kingdom of God, Anyone who is in the kingdom of God at all, even the least member of the kingdom of God, is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Not because we're any better disciples. I'll tell you, I am not a better disciple than John the Baptist was. But I am still greater than John the Baptist because the message I have is a greater message. The fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I can tell anyone I meet that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, has come. He is the Lamb of God who has died for our sins. But God has raised him from the dead. And he has ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. And he reigns over everyone as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I am here as his herald to tell you how you can be right with God and be a part of his eternal kingdom forever. 
That's how we're witnesses that are greater than John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us to be your witnesses. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be in your kingdom, let alone to have the great calling to tell others. Forgive us for being too prideful. Forgive us for being too self-centered. Forgive us for being too timid to fulfill our calling. May we be reminded by the example of John the Baptist that we serve a great Messiah and we have the only message that can save sinners. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.